ਉਹਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਜੋ ਹੋਰ ਹੈ Okay, let us continue Moed Katan Chav Zayin Amit Beis Back to where the Mishnah said Ein menichin es amito berachov The beer is not placed on the, in the street during Chol HaMoed Because we don't want to encourage eulogies on Chol HaMoed So now we're going to discuss the parameters of that halacha Of course, we know when a Talmud Chacham dies, there's a much greater requirement to make eulogies in general. It's all about eulogies for a Talmud Chacham on Chol HaMoed. Amar of Papa, Ein Moed Bifnei Talmud Chacham. Chol HaMoed does not stand in the way of a Torah scholar, and therefore the prohibition of eulogizing on Chol HaMoed does not apply in the case of a Torah scholar. And there's no prohibition of all the other forms of grief because that is, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. What would be the logic of that? Well, in general, we say when you have kolamoid, it's a public festival. And a private person's suffering should not overshadow the joy of the public festival. The public always has dominance. So a regular guy... Okay, you can't, you know, you can't spoil the mood, so to speak. A a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, is really, it's from this it appears, he's not a private individual. Talmud Chacham is one who benefits the whole community. His Torah is a protection, and therefore it becomes a public tragedy, so to speak. And therefore, the public has to recognize, especially the covet HaTorah that is required that the public should have, so that overrules the public nature of the Simcha. That should be the concept over there. And if you could do that for Cholamoid, which is a biblical holiday, Cholamoid is biblical, not rabbinic, Vekol Shekein Chanukah Emporim, and certainly mourning for the Talmud Chacham over... Uh, pushes away the more the joy of Hanukkah and Purim because they are rabbinic. Okay? And, of course, we know there are lesser degree holidays because one can work on Hanukkah and Purim. Okay? So that's the case with a Talmud Chacham. But even with that, there are certain restrictions. The Hani Mili Bafana, but that's only in his presence where the coffin is there. But not in front of him. You just heard about it. Then lo, it's prohibited to do that. That is the statement of Rav Papa. To which Gemara questions that. Gemara says, Aini, is this indeed so? Let's look at a particular story. But Rav Kahana eulogized Rav Zavid of Nahardo. That's where he lived. But he eulogized him in the city of Pumnahara. Okay, so he did it in Pumnahara, the eulogy, while the, the tzaddik who had died was in Nahardoi. And he did that on Chol HaMoed. Morris says, Om Repepi, Repepi says, well, when did this happen? That was on the Yom Shmuah Hava. When did he do this? Although he wasn't in the presence of Rizvi, but that's the day he re- Receive the report. And the day you receive the report of a tragedy, even if it, let's say, is three weeks later, 
but he heard the report on Chol Hamoid. The concept of the day you hear the report is of Dami. It's treated as in the presence of the deceased. So even for a distant city where it took many, many weeks for the report to happen, doesn't matter. The news is shocking. Just like we were relating to you about Nebuch the Bakr Eli, who got killed in the automobile accident. Mm. He was the one even, who was it, Yes, even though we're not there, but the news is shocking. And and it's, it's, it's just overwhelming. So therefore, the same thing with the Talmud Chacham. Clearly, if we... Now, obviously, the Gemara is telling us how much we have to value a Talmud Chacham. That's how important that God's saying even our public celebrations have to be uh, uh, put down a little bit for that. Okay, now that we've discussed that regarding Talmud Chacham, so now we're going to have various terms associated with eulogies. In other words, a lot of rabbinic terms we use, and, you know, English translation doesn't really do it justice. So Gamora wants to say, what do we mean when we say certain terms that apply to a eulogy? Amar the word hespade, okay, when the term hespade is used. So in English we call it a eulogy. But what is a eulogy supposed to be? When, and whatever it's mentioned in the Torah, it says it was a day of Hespeid. <coughs> it's referring al-halev. It refers to beating upon the chest. That you're uh, reflecting, and that's a form of mourning, so to speak, and focused on that. And what's the source to that? Dirsiv. It says... Okay, now the it says they receive al shodayim softim upon the breasts they will be sofed. Now, what do you do on your chest? You don't eulogize. You don't talk to your chest. You don't eulogize your chest. You're you're beating the chest. So the prophet calls to the women to come and express their grief over the great tragedy that will befall the Jews with the destruction of the Samigdash. Now, one does not eulogize on the chest. So therefore, the word softim from hespade, hespade, softim, means to express grief by pounding the chest. Because that's a form of expressing one's sadness. So that's one term. Doesn't, you know, doesn't exclude the fact that you're giving a eulogy, but I guess the pain that it evokes is one pounds his chest. Although it's very unusual. I've never, no matter how sad I've been, I've never... Uh, felt the need to pound my chest. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know it's, it's the only thing that's close to that is when we say vidui, or shamlu bagadnu, we pound our chest. But this, I don't know, this seems to be some way of expressing your grief. There's another term called tipuach. What does tipuach mean when it's said in the Torah or in the Mishnah? It refers to bayat, clapping the hands together. Okay. Uh, some it says clapping the hand against the thigh like that. Kilus, when it says kilus, it means beregel with the foot on the ground. You're stamping your foot on the ground. So what's going on over here? It was the practice in ancient times to beat one's chest, clap the hands together, and stamp one's feet as an expression of grief. That's what Yecheskel says. Hakei bechapcha. Clap your hand, and beat with your feet, and say, Ach, Ach. 
So it was commonly done at a funeral. And look at this, says one of the commenters. This is the custom still in Eretz Yisrael today. Interesting. What? Yeah, in his day, I don't know who, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Ben Hayasom, I don't know who that, that's one of the Rishonim. It's not today, it's like that time. That's yeah, that time. in those days. Um, and that's when the Mishnah discusses levels of, uh, to mourn to such degree or not. These are what the terms means. Okay, now that we have the statements, so now we can see uh, to what extent do we do this normally and on Cholamoid. So, the Gemara now talks about kilus, the stamping of the feet. Hamekales, one who stamps his feet. Lo yekales besandal ela bemano. One who stamps his foot should not stamp with a sandal if he's wearing a sandal. Rather, he should stamp with a shoe. Why? Mipnei hasakana, because of the danger of breaking his foot. Why? A shoe is fitted to the foot and cannot slip out of position. Right? Stamping your foot, everything stays in place. A sandal, I guess those types of sandals, not the ones we have now, with sort of all the different straps on this, is merely strapped around the top of the foot. Thus, there's a concern that the force of the stamping will cause the sandal to alter its position, exposing the bare foot to the ground where the impact might break it. Okay, interesting. That is the Rashi, the one Rashi text. Remember, we have two Rashi texts. Another one has a reverse reading. One should not stamp with a shoe rather than a sandal. Since a shoe is made of soft leather, during the course of stamping, a foreign object, let's say a pin or something on the floor, might pierce the shoe and cause injury. The sole of the sandal, however, is made out of wood and there is no such concern. Pekitzer, when you are stamping, make sure you have the shoes that will not cause any injury. Okay. What? Hiking. Safety boots. Safety boots. Okay, but again, we don't, we don't, we don't do any of this stuff here. We just, uh, whatever. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan discusses various laws of mourning, and now when you're with the mourner, when is it time to leave? It's an interesting point. This is halacha. Like it's paying a shiva call. When is it time to leave? It's an awkward position, isn't it? So uh, usually the easy way is when a lot more people come. And it's getting crowded, you know, okay, now it's time to leave. What if there's nobody there but you and the mourner? I'll say 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So there, so this is our love that the mourner needs to know. He says, Avel, a mourner, Kivan Shaniyanarasho, once he nods his head, indicating he's been comforted, Shuv ein Menachmim Rishoyim Leishavisel. The mourners are no longer permitted to sit beside him. Because when he nods his head, he says, I'm, I'm comforted. And he recognizes, okay, the person has to die. He's coming to terms with the loss. He's consoled himself. So now it's not proper to keep comforting once the guy feels comforted. That's one way of looking at it. That is Rashi, etc. Others explain the Gemara from a different perspective. Since a mourner is forbidden to greet his visitors, he's also unable to offer them good wishes that will send them on their way, like go peacefully. Currently, when he nods and bows slightly in their direction, this is a manner of dismissing them. They are bidden to heed his hint 
He can't talk and say, you can go. Nowadays, with this manner of dismissal is uncommon, the comforters must note on their own when the mourner desires to be left alone and depart from his presence. So what do you see from all this? That if you are comforting a mourner, you better have a little sensitivity to have empathy to feel what the other person is feeling. And only when you feel that you've, you know, you've accomplished some degree of giving comfort to the mourner, that's when it's time to leave. It's a whole different perspective of that. Okay, now when you are mourning, what do you do if you're mourning and a big rabbi comes into the room to comfort you? Now, if you weren't mourning, you'd have to get up for him. Question is, are you are you required to get up for him? So let's say a big rabbi comes in a room and a room full of people at the shiva house. What should be the proper comportment? He says, When a Nasi enters the mourner's room, everyone's supposed to stand up. Except for a mourner or a different scenario. A sick person. Okay? Uh, they're not obligated to rise. And certainly somebody less than a Nasi. Nasi is the top of the, the, top of the chart. The reason is that one is commanded to rise for a Torah scholar or elder only because that affords him honor and reverence. But a, a mourner's rising for the ground, for, from the ground or an ill person's riding from a sickbed is not considered reverential. It follows that on Tisha B'Av too, one does not rise from the ground in honor of a sage. Okay? I guess the person's so, in so much grief. In other words, why is it an honor? Let's think. Again, you got to think problem is we do so many things robotically we don't think Gamora's trying to get us to think so uh, a Nasi comes in the room you stand up why? oh because not because you're supposed to okay but you have to have a little bit of machshava what are you supposed to be thinking? he is a Torah leader right? he, he is he is one to connect us to Hashem we appreciate that we have to honor what he does and therefore, we, regular people, should get up for him. The mourner, we could suggest, and certainly the sick person, is very preoccupied with their mourning. Right? Their life has been shattered. The sick person feels sick. So, how much honor is that when you really don't even have the mindset to really appreciate that you're honoring the scholar? That is more of like an aerob- a robotic action. Right? He, he just can't, he can't be thinking, oh, I'm getting up to honor the Nasi. I can't get past my tragedy that I'm in. Person's sick. He's feeling pain all over his body to get up. So it's not showing honor because the person is not well and he's not getting up for any real reason of reverence as opposed to an otherwise healthy person. So that seems to be uh, that. Uh, now, that, he, 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 your elders are obliged. The mourner's not obliged. Now, I guess if he wants to, he could. If he wants to, he could. It doesn't say it's usher for them to get up, but it, they're not obliged because it generally thinks they're not going to be able to fulfill that obligation. Okay, next interesting point. So therefore, if a rabbi comes and visits in a shiva house, you're not obliged to get up. If you normally would get up, you don't have to get you up. If you're the mourner, only the mourner. Everybody else should get up. 
That's why I t- I've known people don't know the halacha, so I try to go to a mourner when there's nobody there. Because <laughs> then nobody, I haven't made people transgress, so to speak. But anyway, Rav Yochanan says another halacha. Lechal omrim lahem shavu. All are told, be seated. In other words, once you got up for the nasi, you have to be told to sit down. Because you have to now say, okay, the nasi says, be seated. Chutz me'avavachol, except for a mourner and an ill person. Why? Obviously, since they're not required to rise in the first place. But if, if they do rise, they may sit without permission. Although a mourner and ill person are not required, they're not forbidden to rise as they should. Should they rise, they may sit at will. Now Rashi wonders why this teaching is necessary. It is obvious that since the mourner was not obliged to rise, he may sit without receiving permission. So Rashi therefore notes that there's a variant text which introduces this teaching with the phrase, Ikeda Amri, some say Rav Yochan. Therefore it's another version of the previous teaching. Others explain the current teaching as meaning that it is improper, and this is a halacha, it's improper to tell a mourning or ill person, be seated, because this implies that he should remain in his state of mourning or illness. Rather, if he rises, you should say, you need not trouble yourself. It's very important halacha. Here's an example. Let's say, davening a bin chamarv at a shiva house. Okay? So usually the last thing you do is davening Okay, now what's going to happen? A lot of people want to leave and they want to say Hamakam Yenachem. So when you say Hamakam Yenachem, the mourner is supposed to be seated. So some well intentioned people want to move things along. See, again, somebody says the mourner doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing always. The comforter doesn't know what it's supposed to be. It's usually somebody there who's directing traffic. So what we want to have happen, we want the mourner to sit down so people who want to leave can give them words of comfort. So therefore, if the mourner is up to speed, he'll know right as soon as Marv's over, sit down. That makes it easy for everybody. If the mourner doesn't, so sometimes you will hear people saying, okay, sit down. That's not allowed. Because you're saying as if sit down in your state of mourning, stay in that mourning state. So you have to find a way to get him to sit down. So, um, uh, so therefore we say, well, you need to trouble yourself to stand. Right? That's a positive way of saying. So when Mara's over, you know, then uh, we could say, okay, we will comfort the mourner once he is seated. We haven't told him to sit down. You just say, okay, now I know that some people may have to leave, so we will now comfort the mourner on page whatever after the mourner sits. Then the mourner hops, oh, I'm supposed to sit. Without telling him, sit down. Now, it's easier to say, sit down. It's just two words. But now you got to say, no, you need to trouble yourself. A lot of subtleties in a shiva house. And if, you, if you're aware of them, you'll know which shiva houses are done properly. Again, it's not always possible that a rabbi or learned person is at a shiva house, especially by Min Chamarv. So then who takes over? Sometimes the most ignorant person in the room takes over. What or worse? The loudest. Oh, the loudest. <laughs> so it's just to know that if you're in such a situation, so uh, that's how you that's how you go about doing that. I think I'd do that one because I think when we're doubling here with Adam, 
right? After we finished, I think I said, I don't want to just get down to Okay, good. Well, we learned. Well, well, so, so now it's just better. So, okay, now we, we will all comfort Adam after he sits down. Okay. Now some other laws regarding mourning. Of El Yom Rishon. This already, we've talked about it. Okay, but we come back to the main uh, that was assumed. Now we see the sources. A mourner on the first day, Osir Lechem Lechem Yishalau. He's forbidden to eat of his own bread. Bread here does not mean just bread. We say bread because it's the main staple. But any other food of that, okay? And generally, we assume it's the first meal. Now, what's the source for that? Again, we go back always to that prophecy of Yechezkel. When Hashem told him your wife's going to die, some things you do like a mourner, some things you don't do like a mourner. Either way, we see what the custom was. Since Hashem told Yechezkel, do not act like a mourner in this way. And don't eat bread from other people. Meaning normally a mourner does eat bread from other people. Okay, so God wanted to tell, right? And therefore, you, that, in that way, you don't act like a mourner. Okay, one thing. Now, another thing, people are quite poor. So what, how do you manage? You think the people comforting the mourner have lots of extra food? They barely have enough food for themselves, let alone they're going to give food to the other guy. So how do you circumvent the problem of causing yourself to have poverty? Imagine you work a whole day. What do you get at the end of the day at work? You have enough money to buy a, a piece of bread and some vegetables. Okay, now we got to feed the mourner. Oh, well, it's a fine day for you. Your bread and vegetables, you got to give it to him. And now that's the mitzvah, but you're starving. So what do you do if that in the case of such kind of poverty? As we see with the following rabbis. Rabbi Rav Yosef, They would exchange their meals with each other. Whenever one of them was in mourning, the other would send him his meal. Thus, neither of them ate his own food, but each had the meal provided them when he needed it. However, this was permitted only because they did not stipulate in advance that they would exchange meals. Had they stipulated, it would be as though each was eating his own food, since it would be serving in exchange for a meal that he was committed to provide. Rabbeinu Meir notes that the mourner's meal may never be provided by one who's under obligation to feed the mourner, such as a husband to a wife or a master to his apprentice, or it may be provided by a person who always hosts the mourner without obligation, such as one who voluntarily raises an orphan in his home. Although the orphan always eats at his table, it's still considered the food of other people. So they didn't make a stipulation, they would just make up, okay, if you're a mourner, you know, they just had a self-understanding Okay, I give to you, you give to me, but there's not a written down commitment because then it's an obligation that we don't do. Okay, to appreciate the severity of anybody dying in the city, the Amar of Yehudah he says, Mace Ba'ir, a person dies in the city. Again, generally they were small cities, small communities, everybody knew everybody. So if that's the case, call B'nai Ha'ir Asurim Imalacha. Everyone in the city is forbidden to work until the funeral is over. Again, that's a small city, and you know what's going on over there. Okay, again, um, there are exceptions to the rule. Let's say you don't close down the yeshiva just because anybody died. Uh, And therefore, but general people, 
The idea is, in a small city, everybody knows everybody, this person died, we have to give covet a mace, and for that day, nobody's working until after the funeral. Again, depending on what, what's required, but clearly, the funeral, what did they have by, you know, whenever any big rabbi dies, if you go to Eretz Yisholk, is they put a big sign up, Sons of Funeral, and no one should work today until after the funeral. When a big rabbi dies in Yerushalayim or Pnei Brak, they put up a sign. Now, of course, only people who knew the rabbi, all right? But it's still, you shouldn't be working. You have to really be thinking what's going on over there. So, a story about this. Rav Hamnuna Ikloi Ledarmusa. Rav Huna once arrived in Darmusa. Shama Kol Shipur de Shikha. He heard the sound of a chauffeur. And in that place, that was not Rosh Hashanah. So obviously, it's the, that's how you tell everybody somebody died. How do you know somebody died? You blow a chauffeur, everybody knows, oh, somebody dies. So, and he saw Serville just kept working. What a chutzpah. You heard the chauffeur blow. Somebody died in your city, and you just work as if nothing happened. So he's a little bit quick on the trigger. Amr Laho, he said to them, you people should be in a state of excommunication because you are um, not, uh, what do you call it, uh, listening. Isn't there a dead person in your town that needs to be buried? So here comes the answer. They said, yeah, but you don't know. There's burial societies in the town responsible for the burial of its own dead. And it doesn't belong to our society, so to speak. Each society consists of members of the congregation. Others explained the town had a designated Hebra Kedisha. So the general populace was not needed to attend the burial preparations. Similarly, if there's relatives who take care of that. So now we have a, a little modification of the law. Because why do we stop working? Because everybody's got to make sure the dead person gets buried. But if there's a Hebra Kedisha, you don't have to stop for them. But you clearly would have to stop for the funeral. That's something you have to do. Now, Omar Loho, thereupon Ravaluna said to them, Oh, if that's the case, Iochi Sharlachu, I release you from the excommunication. Again, the permit to engage in work only applies during the funeral preparations. We can magically be acquired by others. During the funeral, everyone has to come, accompany the beer, etc., bury everything. Nowadays, since every town does have a Hebra Kedisha, we continue to work. Uh, and during a funeral, it's customary that when the beer of a prominent person is carried down a street, the stores on that street close until the beer passes. If a communal leader dies, all stores are closed until after the funeral. That is the ideas for that. Okay, let's do one more little quick statement. Very important rule. Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav, he also says, Kol hamiskasha almeso yosemidai. Anyone who grieves over the dead to excess, meaning he goes stricter than the laws of mourning, which the Gemara never really said the specific timelines. But uh, in other words, you're supposed to cry. But if you do it more than it's supposed to be, you're uh, making a bigger deal out of it. Let me give you a, a distant um, uh, marshal. It's not perfect marshal, but it's, I think it's a good marshal. Uh, again, the Holocaust was a great tragedy. No one's denying it. It's just that. But you can't make it the religion of the Jewish people. 
In other words, as bad as the Holocaust is, it isn't worse than Tisha B'Av. Everything has to be in its context. We're not minimizing it. Chas v'shalom, and you have to mourn. We're not saying that. But, you know, a lot of places, um, like um, certain societies, Holocaust sites, the whole religion is the Holocaust. And the only reason I'm a Jew is the Holocaust shouldn't happen again. And we don't want one, but that's not the whole religion. Let's not over make it bigger than the Torah. Right? What takes precedence? The Torah or mourning for the Holocaust? Right? So you don't over mourn for it. So what would be an example of over mourning it? Rav Soloveitchik said this. Everybody said this. That really having a day of Yom Shoah, that would be considered mourning to excess. Because it's you, you're making it sound like it's worse than the base of English was destroyed. Again, so where do we we put it in with Tishabov? We mourn. We say a capital for the Holocaust. You should cry for what happened to the Holocaust. No question about it. But it has to be in the context of what Jewish mourning is. And the rabbi said, these are the days that have been designated to mourn for things. Don't be smarter than the rabbis and say, no, it's a special day, especially when it's usher to have Yom HaShoah in the month of Nisan. It shows you how brazen they are. They make it in Nisan. Remember I told you, they wanted to have such a day on the 10th of Teves. The chief rabbis in 1949, they, they decided to have a Yom HaShoah on Asar B'Teves. And in 1949, they did it. Comes along the very smart secular government. It does, doesn't fit our agenda. We have a narrative. Our narrative is we don't believe in halacha. So why would we do it on a day that halacha would fit in with? So we'll make it Dafka in the month of Nisan where it's prohibited to mourn. And that's when we'll have Yom HaShoah. And now you... And see, listen, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that the secular, secular government is just as crafty as the for what they want as crafty as the Palestinians were. What do I mean? Palestinians, they did what they did. Bedafka, why they did that? Not so much that they, because they knew that it would invoke the Israeli response, that they could now say the Israelis are, uh, what do you call, genociders. That was their intent from the beginning. From They knew it, they played it out. They think they care about their people? So let 10,000 die. But this way, pressure on Israel, that was the whole reason the secular leaders of the country, Bedafka wanted it in Nisan. Why? So they knew the Haredim would not take part in it. And then they will not take part in it and see how they don't care about the Holocaust. Don't think otherwise. We're not talking about good Jews. There are many good Jews in the world and they get misled. But the ones who, who are secular, they don't want no Torah, no that. So how do you do it? You disenfranchise them. So now Hashem plays the game. Hashem has a lot of patience. He says, you're the people who want to disenfranchise the religious. I'm going to have the world disenfranchise you. Mita, can I get Mita? Again, I'm, over, I'm saying most Jews are good Jews. Most Americans are good Americans. Really, they are. Most are. But a small amount is able to shift the narrative. And they're able to turn everything on its head. And all of a sudden, everybody... Because Holocaust, what do you mean? You don't ask questions. When it's Holocaust, you don't ask any questions. We have to do whatever you say because we have to remember it. In the middle of Nisa. Why? Why? Because they knew the Haredim wouldn't do it. And then they can say the Haredim are the terrible people. They don't care about the Jews who died in the Holocaust. Because the common Jew doesn't know Halacha and this and that. They don't know about Nisa. So that's why you don't mourn more than they're supposed to mourn. But I think. 
they chose the date because that was the worst I get up. I understand. That was if, the second if, one. If, that was the se- that was the second one. If the worst I get up uprising was in Shlach, for example, or in but what is the Warsaw ghetto uprising? Have to, what does that have to do with mourning for the dead? Because it's, it's not just that. That's the whole thing. It's not just that. It's it's they chose the day partially to show that there was a Jewish uh, force to. Okay, is that how you mourn for people? I'm not saying it. So so what did they do? What did they do? They took Jewish blood to to shape their narrative. Of we have to, you just gave me the drush for this shoppers. Thank you very much. Um, what, what we're talking about, they did it to shape their narrative that only with a powerful Israel will we we'll be able to do it. It's all part of pushing God out of the picture. That's why it's in That's why they took Yeah, but you, well, you would never think of doing it when it's against halacha. Yeah. But it was, it was for both reasons. And they knew if he Nisan, the Haredim wouldn't take part in it. Another one that they do, it's coming up in two weeks. The liberation of Auschwitz was in the January. There's another one they do. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Have a good day. All right. Sai Gazan.